Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. You know, the, the title of this morning's message, The Meaning of Marriage, is Intentional. Um, this last uh, summer here, uh, just actually a couple of weeks ago, I finished up a uh, covenant group that consisted of five newlywed couples and uh, Catherine and I. We met in my home, we ate a lot of food, we enjoyed great fellowship, and we read a, a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. Do I need to move back, baby? Uh, get out, something like that, that might be better. Um, I, and so I mentioned that book, uh, and I named the sermon uh, specifically, intentionally, along the title of that book. I did it on purpose for two reasons. One is I want to highly recommend the book to everybody, whether you are newly married, not married, married for five years, 10 years, 30 years or more. Catherine and I are 33 years, and we read that book together and said, wow, we wish this, we had this book in year one. Uh, we wish we had had that book in year 10 and in year 20. And so whether, wherever you are in your marriage, maybe you read it 10 years ago. A lot of our covenant groups read it, I think, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, revisit it. You'll find that what's in it is very helpful. So I mentioned that. I named the sermon because I wanted to heavily recommend the book to you. I also named the sermon that because, uh, to be honest with you, a lot of the thoughts uh, in this message are, are shaped and influenced by that book. And so I want to give credit right up front to what uh, Tim Keller wrote. Sometimes I, I quote him specifically, but I guarantee you there is much in this sermon that is probably unintentionally words right from that book because it really was that good and it was that impactful. So if you haven't gotten the hint yet out of anything I say, I want you to get the book and read it with your, with your, uh, whether you're single or married. This book by Keller is needed um, because there has been a fundamental misunderstanding of marriage that has crept into our society and, in, and into our churches, and it's led to the devaluation of marriage, both in society, and it's created all kinds of problems, even for the people of God. Increasingly, I interact with Christians whose ideas about marriage, even influencers through various media sources as they speak about marriage, it is obvious that they are more influenced by what society 
now says about marriage and what society thinks about marriage, and they are influenced and shaped by the Word of God. Society's dominant narrative and philosophy about the meaning and purpose of marriage is greatly different than what God's Word says historically. Western civilization's understanding of the purpose, the meaning of marriage, how we are to conduct ourselves in marriage, was greatly shaped by the scriptures. And so as a result, marriage was honored and it was encouraged as it was an expression of God's love for his people. It was honored as the cornerstone of a healthy civilization, as it provided security for want for people. It fostered familial love, and it provided societal stability because as marriage was understood, it fostered a sense of self-sacrifice. It was encouraged and seen as a place where godly character could be developed for male and female alike. And most importantly, it created a place where the next generation could be born, and it could, they could grow, and they could thrive and become healthy men and women of God. What's interesting is even though society's ideas about marriage have radically changed, the research still stresses the importance of a healthy marriage between a husband and wife as being important for the raising of children who end up becoming well-adjusted adults. You cannot under or overemphasize the importance of a healthy marriage for the raising of children. Through the centuries, it was understood that marriage required the subordination of personal desires and freedom for the greater good of the family, maybe for the tribe, for the town, and ultimately for the nation. But beginning in the Enlightenment, uh, the Enlightenment planted the seeds of what we see today because the Enlightenment stressed the individual more than the, the body whole and the collective and the nation, for example. Individual freedom, individual self-fulfillment, individual self-actualization became more importantly and more emphasized than the self-sacrifice and the removal of, uh, or the subordination of freedom and maybe the removal of options that marriage often requires. Keller writes in his book that, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefining its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children. Slowly but surely, this newer understanding of the meaning of marriage has displaced the older ones in Western culture. Marriage used to be about us, but now it is about me. But ironically, this new review of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that more traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us desperately trapped between both unrealistic longings for and terrible fears about marriage. These fears about marriage are expressed in our society in a number of ways, but the most obvious way is the percentage of people that now live together for extended periods of time before they get married. Or by the great numbers of people who say, well, why do I even need to get married? It's just a piece of paper. We love one another. This devaluation is of marriage is because of fear. 
What if this person isn't the right person? What if there's somebody who is better than this person who I should ultimately end up with? What if our chemistry isn't as real as what I think it is and it dies out in a few years? Shouldn't we give it a dry run first? And so in 1950, 1960, when there was an infinitesimal percentage of people who lived together before marriage, now it's the majority of people who lived together before actually getting married. God's purposes for marriage and the meaning of marriage itself is, is, itself is so much more than a piece of paper or a social contract between two people who are now in love and have decided to get married for various personal reasons and, and to be honest, often idealistic and self-centered reasons. Our sermon text in Ephesians chapter 5 makes it abundantly clear. And so we're going to begin this little series. We're going to have a three-week series called Family Matters. And we're going to be touching this morning, obviously, on marriage. Next week, it's going to be sex and sexuality. And, and then we will return the third week to these things that, help us, that that we don't even realize sometimes can destroy our marriages. But this morning, we're going to dig in right here in Ephesians chapter 5 with the meaning of marriage. I want to make three observations from the passage and then answer an important question. First observation, God created marriage for both physical and metaphysical reasons. Now, you see the physical reasons alluded to even here in Ephesians chapter 5. This is a passage of Scripture that Paul is giving that is essentially saying, here's how to conduct yourself within the physical bonds and realm of marriage. There's certainly physical reasons why God created marriage. A home and it's supposed to be a place of security and comfort. It's supposed to be a place of companionship. It's also supposed to be a place of procreation. And there's clearly physical reasons why God gave us marriage. It is a physical institution that has physical people interacting in a very physical way. But even in the physical, there are metaphysical purposes that ultimately supersede even the physical. Two weeks ago, I spoke about community, companionship, friendship, to how this is hardwired in our DNA because we have been created in the image of God and God has eternally been living in a loving biblical community between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we crave this kind of connection with other people. The first place this is to be manifested is in the home between a husband and wife. And so there is a metaphysical purpose in saying, come together as one flesh. Procreation itself has a metaphysical purpose as it does a physical purpose. And the production with the offspring and the procreation of children and the people, humanity spreading throughout the earth. The image of God is spread throughout the earth, and every human being in earth is a screaming testimony to principalities and powers and unseen forces of this, of this universe that the earth belongs to God because his image is everywhere in the earth. It's all his, and he's sovereign. So even the physical act of procreation and, and that coming together as one flesh physically, besides the spiritual and emotional dynamics, has a metaphysical purpose behind it. Ephesians 5, this passage, shows us 
the metaphysical, spiritual, eternal side of marriage. Clearly, this is a purpose of God in creating and designing it. Second observation, yeah, it was along these lines. Metaphysically, when you look at marriage, marriage is meant to reflect and model the love that Christ has for his church. Verse 24 reads, Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, verse 28 says, Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This idea of love in marriage. There's two very contrasting pictures in our world today. There is the worldly understanding of love, and then there's what we see here in marriage in, in Ephesians chapter 5, a covenantal form of love as seen by Jesus towards his church. In our world, the idea is romantic love. It is emotional love. Romantic love is paramount. It's a passionate feeling. It is chemistry with one another, and it is primarily emotional desire more than covenantal. In many respects, it's consumeristic. It is that idea of what do I get out of this relationship? How does this person you know, fulfill me and help me and, and bless me and make me a better person? It's very self-centered. One of the reasons why so many couples today live together before getting married is they're so concerned about the chemistry, the compatibility between themselves. And, and what if I find out a year from now or two years from now or five years from now that, there is, that the chemistry dies away and that you know, maybe there's somebody better who I have better chemistry with or I'm more compatible with, shouldn't we first do a dry run, you know? We don't just buy a car, right? We take the car for a test drive. Maybe I should take her for a test drive. Maybe I should take him around the block a few times, kick the tires and see how much oil he leaks, right? And, and that's our modern idea within, within marriage. You know, and, and sadly, um, this actually is a, a, a doomed, self-fulfilling prophecy. Everyone's so, you know, romantic love and the sexual aspects of romantic love are so emphasized, and we have such a hookup culture today that this approach ends up sabotaging the relationship. It actually creates a, a vicious cycle, even in the realm of, of sexual intimacy. If you only make love when there are romantic, you're in a romantic mood at the same time as your partner, well, what you're going to see over time is the sinking of those moods becomes less and less and less. And then because you, you know, your, your sexual intimacy is linked to how you feel and whether there's a romantic passion at the moment, and that's, you didn't express it through sexual intimacy because that's your you know, your paradigm of looking at life, as it happens less, you feel less loving. And then you start, well, I guess I was right. We really don't have the chemistry that I thought we did. But maybe the chemistry's over here. And so you go to 
another model. Biblical marriage is not built upon this kind of consumeristic, you know, flighty kind of love. It's, it's covenantal love. It's the covenantal love that we see here in Ephesians chapter 5 with Jesus. It's an action word. It's an action word. It's a verb. It's, it's not an emotion. Now, it will certainly lead to great emotion. And when covenantal love exists within the marriage, there will certainly be that passion and that romance that will also grow deeper and more profound as the years go by. There's a definite difference between the covenantal love and the consumeristic romantic love of this world. And we see that covenantal love in Christ. We're going we're gonna to unpack what this looks like more in just a moment when we answer a question. But we need to pause for a third observation that really centers on the idea of the covenantal aspect of covenantal love. Marriage is the most deeply covenantal relationship there is between human beings. Marriage is a covenant relationship made before God. Therefore, to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God. Marriage, kind of going back to what uh, Keller said a few moments ago in that quote about the enlightenment, marriage is not about me. It's about us. But the us has both a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it. The us isn't just me and the other person. It's me and the other person and God. And this is clearly reflected in the scriptures. You go back to the Old Testament, for example, and Malachi chapter 2. God is, God is announcing judgment on the people of Israel. And he's saying, you guys are, in, you guys are about to experience the deep judgment for your sin. And he says in chapter 2, verse 13, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, you guys are going through all of this religious exercise, and you're coming to the temple, and you're doing all these things, and it means absolutely nothing to me. And why? Verse 14. Why does God not like our worship? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. Covenant. I guess you need the words on the screen, don't you, to say that with me. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God says, I was there when you made that covenant. It wasn't just a covenant relationship between you and your wife, fellas. It was a covenant relationship between you, your wife, and me, your creator. And to break that covenant is serious. And ladies, don't think you get off the hook. Because the book of Proverbs, which we just left over and over again, Paul, uh, Solomon says to his sons to get wisdom so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Marriage is a covenantal, is based upon covenantal love. Godly marriage is based off of covenantal love. I should maybe rephrase that. Not a consumeristic 
romantic, passionate concept of love. Keller gives a great illustration in his book about what covenantal love and and the importance of covenant is to marriage. He says, imagine an A-frame house. How many of you have seen an A-frame house? You know what I'm talking about. If you're probably from up north, you see them more than you do down here in the south, right? An A-frame house is, looks kind of like a, a triangle. It has very, two sides that are very, very sharp slopes, and I guess that's to help snow and things like that fall off of it a little bit more easily. I don't know. But, but he says marriage is very much like that. You have a foundation and two sides. The foundation covenantal relationship between the husband and the wife at the foundation is our covenantal relationship with God. That underpins everything. And then the husband and wife, they make a covenant with one another, leaning against one another. But at the core of that covenantal relationship with one another is the foundational covenantal relationship with God. So marriage and this idea of covenant, it's horizontal, it's vertical. It's an important concept. The the word covenant has legal overtones to it, contractual overtones to it, doesn't it? And, And that kind of seems at odds with love in our modern, especially in our modern thinking, because in our modern world, love and law do not go together, right? Love is the positive word, right? That's the word of freedom and excitement and passion and, you know, googly eyes and everything else that goes along with it, right? Law is what? Duty. How many of you like the word duty? Most of us don't. Obligation. Responsibility. Ah! Of all words, right? And those two words don't seem like they go together, love and law. But interestingly, as Keller points out, a covenantal relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. The love, the law aspects of the covenantal relationship, the responsibility, the obligations, is vitally important. I mean, when you think about it, the very act of standing up before God and witnesses and entering into a legal contract, covenant, with someone else, that is an enormous act of love in and of itself. It really says something. Rather than stifling passion and desire, that kind of commitment actually frees us to become more passionate more secure and more devoted to one another. I mean, coming before God and witnesses and making this kind of of legal covenantal agreement with our partner, our spouse, it's a radical act of self-giving that says, I need you. I need you and I want you in my life more than anything else that I could pursue on the human realm. I I love you, and I want you, and I need you in my life so much that I am willing to right now lay aside other options, i.e. other people that may not gain 30 pounds in 20 years, that may make more money, that may be better looking, It may smell nicer or cook better or you fill in the blanks. doesn't matter. I'm willing to lay aside all of those possible options. I'm willing to curtail my freedoms that I have because I want you 
in my life. I can't imagine life without you. And therefore, I'm willing to curtail my personal freedoms. And I'm going to give you myself to prove it. Marriage, covenantal marriage, is an incredible act of love within that legal paradigm. Law and love are not opposed to one another. They, they complement one another. In fact, the legality of marriage and the marriage covenant itself, in the long run, it enhances marital love. Let's be real for a moment. Dating, because I'm going to assume you're dating. If you're living together, it's even true if you're living together, and hopefully this sermon's going to convict you, and you'll stop living in sin, and you'll come and talk to me, and we'll help you get right before God. Yeah, I just said that. Okay? Because that's what God says. And I want to tell you that you're happiest when you're in the will of God. Amen, church? But dating, if you're living together, let's just let's, let's be real. It is one massive PR exercise. It's a public relations exercise. That's what it is. You know what you do? You put your very best foot forward. When we date, when we are going through that phase of life, your life is consumed with constantly proving your value to the other person. So that hopefully, ultimately, they say yes, or they commit themselves to you for life. It's a consumeristic approach. And to be quite honest, we know that we have to continue to impress and to prove ourselves, and that this approach is consumeristic because if we don't do it well enough, what happens? Partner breaks up or we move out, we find somebody else who fits the need. It's very consumeristic. But when you think about it, marriage is very different. It provides a place of security so that we can actually begin to know each other. Keller, Keller says it like this. He says, the legal bond of marriage however, creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay the last layer of our defenses down and be completely naked, both physically and in every other way. When two people genuinely love each other and are not simply using one another for sex, status, or self-actualization, they don't want the situation to ever change. Each wants assurances of enduring commitment, and each delights to give those assurances. So the law of vows and promises fits our deepest passions at the present, but it is also something the love of our heart needs in order to have security about the future. What he's saying here is that when we make, when we understand the the importance of covenant, and we're loving one another from a covenantal perspective, which is that blend of love and law, it actually frees us to stop performing, enticing, and to be real with one another, to be authentic with one another. When we think of the concept of covenant in light of the biblical, con uh, the biblical covenants that God made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and then the new covenant. If you think about those covenants, every one of them we quickly realize is a promise about the future as much as it is about the present. It's about the future, that this is what we will do or I will do. Every covenant God made, I am going to do this for you. 
in the future from this point on. It's future-oriented. And this covenant is a holy covenant. It's a holy covenant. It's never to be voided except in the most egregious of situations. It's horizontal and vertical. And because it's vertical, there's only a few reasons God gives us that makes divorce and ending that covenant relationship a viable option. Let me, let me pause here for just a moment. For those of you who are members of our church, you know, you took vows. You entered into a covenant relationship with our church and with one another. And one of those covenant vows is that we will pursue the peace and the purity of the church. This applies to our marriages. And if you're a member and you are struggling in your marriage, certainly if you are contemplating separation or divorce, I want to encourage you to remember your covenantal vows that you made in this church and come to us, come to me, come to another elder and come sooner rather than later. If you come sooner rather than later and you meet with us, I promise you have a higher probability of seeing your marriage healed and restored. Unless until you, if you wait to the very last second when things have already gone to DEFCON 1 and the missiles have already been released, it's awfully hard to put them back in the silo. But if you come at DEFCON 3, for those of you who even know what I'm talking about, right, I guess, <laughs> we can help. We can help. Hey, let's, uh, I, I said there were three observations, right? That uh, God's purpose for marriage, his meaning of marriage, is more, as much uh, metaphysical as physical. Marriage is meant to reflect and model the love Christ has for his bride, the church. Marriage is the most deeply covenantal relationship there is between humans. Now let's answer a question in the last few minutes. What does covenantal love look like within marriage? I would suggest, first of all, it is leaving and cleaving, or it's cleaving and holding fast to one another through all of life's challenges. No matter what it is, covenantal love looks like that holding fast, cleaving to one another through whatever life throws at you. We see here in verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, or in other translations, cleave. This is where we get the idea of leaving and cleaving. He's quoting from Genesis. He'll hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you hear that? Verse 32, let me read it again. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In verse 31, Paul is evoking the idea of that covenant, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. To hold fast, to cleave to one another through sickness and health, through wealth and poverty, through good times and bad. That word is the, has the idea of being glued fast to one another, an unbreakable bond, being united by a sacred binding oath to stick it out through thick and thin, cleaving, holding fast. But in verse 32, Paul says, I want to reveal to you a mystery. And literally, he says, I want to reveal to you a mega mystery, mega mysterion. When we think of a mystery, we think of a, a secret, right? Something that's not been revealed before, and, and it certainly can have that meaning. But I think what Paul is getting at here is another understanding of that word, something stupendously awesome, incredibly beautiful, deeply profound. I want to reveal to you something deeply profound about marriage, he says in verse 32. 
When God designed and he performed the very first marriage, he already had in mind our redemption and our restoration to him through Christ Jesus and the cross. Marriage was created to reflect the love that God has demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever seen your marriage that way? That your marriage is meant to reflect the gospel itself. Covenantal love in marriage looks like the gospel. And this was God's intention all the way back in the garden when he said, leave your father and mother and cleave to one another and become one flesh. What, the reason why he gave that command was to help us understand the metaphysical reason and the metaphysical truth, that eternal, beautiful truth, stupendous truth, the awesome truth of the gospel, that God loves us so much that he would send his only son into the world so that any who would believe in him might be saved and reconciled to him. Hey, if you carry nothing away with you this morning, I hope you carry this away and you chew on it over the days ahead. Ponder it. This takeaway truth, the gospel provides us with both the pattern and the power for a great marriage. If your marriage is a five or a six, you're struggling, maybe, maybe it's just not where you want to be, the answer is the gospel. The gospel gives you the pattern for what, for what a healthy, beautiful, stupendously awesome marriage can look like. It's through the pattern of the gospel that you have, ultimately, a mega mysterion marriage. Don't you like that? Maybe you write, we write that as a life goal. I want my marriage to be a mega mysterion. It kind of sounds like a transformer, but, you know, for those of you who are aware of transformers, but, but don't lose it, okay? The gospel provides us with both the pattern and the power for a great marriage. It's the pattern of Jesus and the gospel that motivates us to fulfill our promise to limit options, to curb our personal freedoms now, right now, so that we can have freer, fuller options in the future for the people who we love the most, who matter to us the most, who we care about and trust the most. It's what the gospel does for us. Isn't this what Jesus did for us in Ephesians 5? I mean, it's right here. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus laid aside and curbed his own options, his own personal freedom. He took on human flesh put aside the glory that was his temporarily as the second person of the Trinity in heaven with God the Father and the Spirit. And he did all of this, why? So that those who he loved the most, who God had given him before the foundations of the world, could be the fulfillment of God's promises so that they could have the future that he wanted for them, that he loved for them, to be reconciled to God, to be redeemed from their sins, to be saved and be restored. This is what Jesus did. He subordinated his desires. Not my will, but thy will be done, Father. Remember that incredible scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus 
subordinates his own human desires for the good of his people. Jesus did not come to be served, he said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pattern for a healthy covenantal marriage. It is a marriage where the partners seek the good of the other first before their own good. Where, the, where we, the husbands, serve their wives as leaders in the home. Leadership, guys, is not an autocratic, snap-the-whip leadership. Jesus' leadership is servant leadership. It is pursuing the good of your wife before you pursue your own good. It is pursuing the good of your children before you pursue your own good. It is sacrificing yourself and your own desires and your own freedoms so that your wife and your children can become the fullest, most beautiful creation that God intends for them to be. And wives, it is subordinating yourself to your husband and putting aside those options so that your husband can be all that God wants him to be. Now, this whole passage starts out with that verse. We didn't read it, but it starts out by submitting yourself one to another. The gospel in our relationship is subordinating ourself for the good of the other person. Serving them rather than being served, laying down my life as a ransom for these who God has given to me. This is the picture of the gospel in our marriage. Ladies, you get that command more than once. Why? It goes all the way back to the garden. The curse of the fall, the area that you will struggle, is subordinating for your husband. You won't struggle for it for your children. You'll struggle with it for your husband. And so it's mentioned more than once. But that doesn't mean that men don't have the same problem and the same issue. We do. We all do. In fact, if you look at this passage and you understand that the gospel is the pattern for our marriages, you say, oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) There's no way I can ever do this. I mean, we've all experienced it. Have you ever had those moments in your life where, you know, I don't really love this person as much as I used to. They're awfully hard to love right now. I mean, maybe that's never happened to you, but it certainly has happened for Catherine. Um, (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why? Because I'm a sinner. Romantic love, it is going to ebb and flow in your relationship. There are going to be rough patches. And this is going to happen first and foremost because we are both sinners in a marital marital relationship. And our sin, our self-centeredness, our self-actual desires for self-actualization and self-fulfillment and self-whatever are going to come out and manifest themselves. And it's going to interrupt the harmony of the marriage and it's going to hurt your spouse and they're not going to feel very loving towards you at any moment. It happens because of our sinfulness. We go through rough patches, though, for another reason. The person that we're married to is not the person we married. Right? I mean, just within a short time of being married, 
Everyone, anybody who's ever been married, shortly after being married, there's a point, maybe one morning, one evening, in the quiet of your heart, let's be honest, where you go, uh-oh. Okay? Because the person we married was an idealized version. I mean, that person had been putting their best foot forward. That person never had gas on your dates. And everything else that just goes with life, right? We married an idealized person. But now we are together in this home, and we can't get away from each other. There's no kissing at the door. Good night. She goes to her place, and you go to your place, and what? No, uh-uh. Can't get away. And then there's just a reality that we change in life. Catherine married Jerry 1.0. Jerry 33.0 has a lot of bugs and bad code, and she's wondering maybe should I switch from Microsoft to Apple because this guy, this is buggy, right? I mean, this just happens. We change in life. And so the person that we're now married to is not the person we married. And so if that marriage is just based upon romantic, passionate, consumeristic love, it's going to fall apart. It is covenantal love of the gospel that gets us through this. It's the pattern and the power of the gospel that helps us to love this person in a way that becomes deeper, bolder, more mega-mysterion and wonderful through the years. As we grow in our understanding and appreciation of what Jesus has done for us, and by the way, what Jesus has done for our spouse the more we come to value our spouse and the more we come to understand and delight and rest in what Jesus has done for us at the cross, the more we are changed to be more like Jesus. The more we love the other person more like Jesus, the more motivated we are to give our life for the other person. And then as we rest in that power of the Holy Spirit within us, And as he is applying the gospel in our lives, we will see our marriages being covenantal, beautiful marriages. Don't you you love those pictures that we see in time of couples who is obvious? They are that one flesh relationship and all of the multiple dimensions that that means. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That all happens because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Marriage is a picture of God's love for us in Christ. The Lord's table this morning is a picture of the same. It is a picture of Jesus laying aside his options, his personal freedom, giving of himself for the benefit of his people. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he broke it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And why was his body broken for us? So that we could be healed and restored in relationship with our heavenly father. And then after supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for you. And why is this important? Because without the shedding of blood, the scriptures tell us there is no way God could forgive our sins. But with the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. This meal is a meal that celebrates what Jesus has done for us. It is a meal where Jesus feeds us because right now in his spirit, through the spirit, he is with us. And through this meal, this sacred moment, he feeds us in a mysterious way, a wondrous way, a way that we can't fully understand. But something happens with this meal when the people of God come together through the presence of the Holy Spirit and he strengthens us. He convicts us. He encourages us. He empowers us. For the, for the person who doesn't know Christ, this meal, through the Holy Spirit right now, you may be convicted of your need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. This meal is for people who've already made that commitment. So if you've not made the commitment to Christ this morning or haven't so far, I'm going to ask you not to take this meal, but to allow this meal to be a provocation to you to encourage you to surrender your life to Christ, the one who died on the cross can reconcile you to God. If you're not a member of our church, but you know Jesus, you are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper with us. Paul goes on and says, no, we are not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. So even the people of God who know Christ, sometimes we have to pass the meal by. Why? Because when we are holding on to sin, refusing to call it what it is, and to lay it at the feet of Jesus and ask for the strength to gain victory over that sin. When we cling to our sin more than we will cling to the cross, this meal is meant to convict us to repent before we take this meal. But if you know Jesus, and to the best of your knowledge, you are not holding on to a sin in defiance of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, refusing to call it what it is, refusing to repent, as long as you are not in that state, you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. But we do want to do so in a clean manner. So let's pause for a few moments. So I want to give you time to bow your heads and close your eyes and pray before God and cleanse your heart before Him so that we take this in a worthy manner.